The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Trad Controversies on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and on this episode, I am joined by Father Anthony Chicada, assistant pastor at St. Gertrude the Great Roman Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio. Uh, Father, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here, Stephen. Show topic today is Home Alone, uh, one of those catchphrases, uh, I would say trademark, but I don't think you filed a trademark for it, Father. You should have, really. <laughs> but uh, one of these trademarks of uh, Father Anthony Jakata to talk about those people who've decided that they know a lot and that they're going to structure their entire Catholic life around all of the theology and canon law that they know. We're going to get into that. How recently, how recent is, because I, if I refer to the original article, Home Alone, there's, there's a time to that, but was this, has this always been around from the early days of the traditional movement, or has it something that, that's kind of gotten steam as time has, has gone on? It's been a part of it. It's been a, a trend in the uh, certain areas of the traditionalist movement ever since I became familiar with the traditionalist movement. The idea behind what we're talking about, the home alone position, that, refu- that refers to uh, Catholics who are uncomfortable with, who denounce the Vatican II changes, the liturgical changes, the doctrinal changes, uh, etc., they regard them as, as heretical, as harmful, and so on. But when it comes to the positive practice of uh, their religious life as Catholics, they say that in terms of having access to the sacraments, the Church's canon laws, uh, the canon law of the Catholic Church, really prevents any priest from legitimately uh, conferring the sacraments uh, on uh, anyone. And this is because of the different requirements in canon law for proper authorization. So these people will say that, well, uh, this this body of laws in the canon law of the Catholic Church prohibit any uh, traditionalist uh, priest from any traditionalist organization from conveying and, and, and conferring sacraments. So I will not assist at uh, any of these, these uh, masses or, or uh, receive such a priest's sacramental ministrations. I will simply stay home. I will practice my Catholic faith on my own without reference to these, uh, uh, these sacramental actions. So that's kind of a, a, a resume of the position. 
Now, it has been part of the traditionalist movement uh, from the beginning. Initially, you had priests who, who were actually rather upset with the Vatican II changes, were quite worried about this question of uh, auth- proper authorization or jurisdiction from a uh, diocesan bishop, and there, there would be certain sacraments that they would not confer. And uh, at the same time, though, uh, you had lay Catholics who decided that none of the ministrations, not even of, of these particular priests, could be uh, assisted at because they uh, these priests violated canon law of the Catholic Church for obtaining the requisite permissions. So that's a little overview of uh, of the position. And I remember reading articles uh, about this from the, the uh, first point at which I got involved in the traditionalist movement, which was in 1975. Would you, would you characterize it as having grown in popularity, or has it always stayed at, at a sort of basic level? I think that it's, it's stayed basically at a, uh, at a low level. I don't think that it's, it's something that is, has really increased. And the reason for that is, I, I think, uh, on the face of it, a, your average Catholic is, is going to say that this conclusion doesn't really make an awful lot of sense. I can't explain why. But it just doesn't seem to me, from what I know about the church and the sacraments, to make an awful lot of sense. You know, uh, people refer to, uh, especially recognized and resistors, will refer to sort of a contism as a dead end. And we'll, we'll address that in a future episode. But I tend to think of the Home Alone uh, scenario as the undead end, the sort of zombie end, uh, because you really have no solution to it. In, in, their, in their universe, um, they've removed even the means of, of continuing on in emergency times. And I just feel that there isn't a, an honest look at our situation. So to dig in a little bit more, uh, Father, could you take the Avocatus Diaboli position and explain to me, uh, Johnny Trad, shall we say, mm-hmm. why I should not go to St. Gertrude to get, uh, or any uh, chapel where there's a validly ordained Catholic priest to receive sacraments, why can't I do that? Okay. Some people would say that anything I say is the advocatus diaboli position. <laughs> that's, that's another issue. They would say something like this. That, that Look, Stephen, here, uh, here are some photocopies from the uh, Code of Canon Law, from an English translation of the Code of Canon Law. And these laws are very specific about how you have to be ordained to the priesthood. You have to have uh, certain authorizations. And these authorizations can only come from a diocesan bishop. So if someone goes to get ordained without these authorizations, without these demissorial letters, well, he's violating the law of the church, and he's not really legitimately sent by anyone. Uh, his ordination is... is illicit, and he has suspended. The code says if you don't have these uh, documents, uh, the priest is is suspended. So, you know, uh, Father Chikata is someone who is is, uh, suspended, so you should, it's it's wrong to go to his mass. So how would you, how would you answer, I'm going to have you turn onto the other side of the table now and and answer this objection. Uh, Why would it, why is that uh not a, a criticism we need to worry about. 
Okay, well, uh, as far as the, uh, if we back up a little bit and look at this a little more generally, the reaction of the Catholic in the pew is, the typical Catholic in the pew is actually very sensible, and it was my reaction as a seminary when I first heard these arguments, that you say, no, wait a minute, okay, yeah, that, that you know, it says that you have to have these letters and everything uh, from the diocesan bishop, but then you say, well, the diocesan bishop, though, is a heretic. Of course he's going to say that um, uh, he's not going to uh, let some troglodyte like Chicada get uh, ordained. Uh, so, you know, something like that is going to end up being impossible. And then you scratch your head and you think that, well, well, what am I supposed to do? So I don't get the Eucharist anymore. But isn't that something that has to be an integral part of the Christian life as, as, our Catholic, uh, as, as, as Catholics? Shouldn't I receive the Eucharist? So why isn't... Uh, there's something wrong with this idea that somehow the law of the church would forbid me from getting the Eucharist, or that it would would stop the saying of Mass, because the diocesan bishop hates the traditional Mass, and he has done everything he possibly could to suppress it. He suspended old priests who have have, uh, tried to say it, but now we can't have the holy sacrifice of the mass because we can't have priests because they don't get these these uh, certificates from the diocesan bishops and they don't get this this uh, these letters of approval so there's something wrong with that the reaction of someone with uh, common sense and with the catholic faith because you think that well the sacraments are supposed to be the primary means of salvation, the ordinary means of salvation for us. And if you follow this theory, the the whole alone theory, you can't. Uh, it's it's all blocked. The means of salvation are blocked. So that's the the that's the first the gut reaction. Second, the more theological response is this: that well. The sacramenta propter hominis, that, that the sacraments are uh, instituted by Christ for men and uh, for their salvation. They are governed by certain human laws uh, that the church has established, but these laws are not ends in themselves. They're intended to protect the validity and the correct conferral of the sacraments. So, by using these to uh, these very laws to prevent the uh, conferral of the sacraments, the whole system ends up being turned on its head. What do you think is driving this, uh, Father? Because I think uh, obvious, there's a certain comfort that the Catholic takes in knowing that there is a superstructure in place that, ordinarily speaking, we know that there's there's a diocese, there's archdioceses, there's Monsignori. Uh, you can't just wander into a confessional somewhere. You need to let someone know that you're visiting the diocese. Can I have faculties to hear confession? That when everything's in order, that this is how the church runs, and there's a reason for, I, you could say, this bureaucracy. But I think the problem that I have when I hear that is this assumes that the church has always been in this majestic position of power, and it ignores the fact that Christians used to live in the catacombs with popes getting murdered, you know, every other night. And there wasn't a question of who had jurisdiction for what. And I think that's ultimately when I when I look at the home alone question, my question is, 
why are you seizing on this particular time period and saying, well, the 1917 code said this? And my question is, what in our year resembles anything to what the church was in 1917? And, and what would you have us do? And I think that's, that's my problem is, so their idea isn't your idea. Your idea is we need to continue operating as Catholics, doing what we can. We can't make any declarations. We just, you, you as a priest, you celebrate mass, you give sacraments, you give sermons, um, you, uh, you chat with people at coffee and donuts. That's your job. Uh, they would say, no, you're not allowed to do any of that. What we have to do now is say the rosary and maybe the head of the family will, will read the mass at home. And that's, that's about it. Yeah. To take that position, you lack the historical perspective of really what the purpose of uh, the different laws of the church, well, why the church had the different laws uh, that she did. And it goes back to this idea that, you know, they were not um, uh, ends in themselves. They were made to make the sacraments uh, available uh, to people and to have the sacraments conferred in, in, in a correct way. So all of the laws of, of the church were directed towards that. And they, they did not always have the same form that they had in the 1917 Code of Canon Law. So the, these were uh, what you find in the code. Uh, for the most part, are uh, human laws. They are laws that are are, are uh, based on practical uh, decisions made by the uh, authority of uh, the church to keep things in uh, to keep things in in good order when it came to sacraments and 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 preaching and Catholic teaching and so on. If you take, for instance, the question of um, jurisdiction for confession, it is necessary to validly absolve um, to have uh, that you have a jurisdiction over the penitent. And normally, the way that this was conferred was that you got it in a certain territory from the diocesan bishop, and he gave this faculty to certain priests to hear confessions. Well, what was the purpose behind that law? The purpose behind the law was to ensure that those who heard confessions were properly trained in moral theology and uh, adhered to the church's moral teaching, etc. So the bishop would give out this um, permission to those who were properly trained. Well, that was not always the case. For instance, in, in the um, Kingdom of the Two Sicilies during the time of St. Alphonsus, you had something like 17,000 priests. That's a fairly small geographical era, uh, area. Not all of them had the jurisdiction to hear confessions. Some were simply were simplex priests uh, because they didn't have the uh, requisite level of training. Uh, we we don't have any context for that now. We we think uh, we think everyone who's ordained has you know does all those sacraments. Or even uh, we see traditional Benedictines. It seems that all of their Benedictines get ordained, but that it wasn't always the case for Benedictine monasteries. So I think a lot of times we lack that perspective. That you're talking yeah, that you're it, to. It's the same thing even for something non-sacramental like preaching. 
that uh, you had authorization from the diocesan bishop. You were given permission to do that because not everyone was considered worthy of preaching, <laughs> even if you were a priest. So it's that perspective. You figure out well, what is the, uh, you know, what is the, uh, what is the purpose of uh, the law, and the purpose of all these laws was to uh, protect the sanctity of the sacraments, to see that things were done properly, uh, and that the Catholic faith was preserved. But to fixate on the legislation that uh, parceled permission for these things out and to say that now, well, it, it prohibits everything, uh, is, as I say, really to turn everything on its head. I've been pretty hard on, on homeowners during this episode, um, Father, so I, I want to step back for a minute and say that part of me understands what drives some of this, because I, I can see someone... I, I wouldn't say that they're flipping through dusty tomes because that would imply going to libraries and doing research. What I can say is that they're getting maybe printing out various internet articles and they're reading this. And again, this all looks pretty scary. Anathema, you know, con condemnation, suspension. And, and as anyone who is trying to understand the mess of the situation that the, the, the Catholic Church finds itself in since the Second Vatican Council, this complete destruction of what we, we knew and we could see the visible Catholic Church was. Yeah, I understand that they're trying to do the right thing. Some of them, I can't say all of them necessarily have goodwill, but I know that there are got to be some home owners of, of genuine goodwill. Can you, I know you've dealt with these people far more than any of us have, Father, not only because you've had to write articles, but you've had to, I'm sure, be attacked by, by these people. What would you say that the DNA of a home alone person is? What is it within their Catholic brain that is a, a little bit skewed that makes them not examine this issue in, in a way that, that you would consider to be the Catholic way of looking at it? That's a, a little bit difficult to say. One, one of the uh, curious well, not curious things, but something that I've noticed fairly consistently is that uh, among the uh, this seems to be primarily an American type of disease among uh, American traditionalist uh, Catholics that the European types uh, really do not uh, worry about the these legal issues for some reason as. Uh, as much as American traditionalists have done. And maybe that's something to do with uh, the uh, American legal tradition, the American constitutional uh, tradition, and the idea that basically you can sort of figure out everything for yourself uh, independently, and uh, you, know, you have the correct understanding of the Constitution, and um, no one's going to tell you. So maybe it's a little bit... Uh, uh, maybe it's a little bit of, of of that, the idea that, well, I can figure all of this out uh, for myself, um, that uh, in a civil court I could appear, you know, and represent myself, let's say, pro se, and um, speak up in, in uh, a lawsuit. Um, and so there's that element that I can figure this all of this out for myself. I don't need uh, anyone to tell me I can properly uh, inform myself. And so, so I think rugged that, that, traditionalism. 
The, yeah, and the rugged American traditionalist. So I think that's uh, that's a part of it. I think it's it's uh, maybe it's uh, a part of you know the American mentality and the American culture because as I say, this is really where where I've noticed it, and uh, I've heard of very little of, of objections like these in. Um, uh, in other countries, so I think that that's the idea, and that we were deceived by uh, people and the clerics in the position of authority before, and we're not going to be fooled again by clerics who you know supposedly claim authority because we know better they they really don't have it. So I think that that that's a part of it as well, that particular consideration that you know we're not going to get fooled again. So those two components. You've also dealt with people who've, who've left the, the home alone position and have come back to the sacraments. Is there a unifying argument? Is there a unifying thread? What, what helps to break that logjam? Uh, do, you, do, you, uh, do you have some gotcha arguments, or is there a particular just a way of persuasion that helps people to, to look at? Because I think ultimately, it's a, a willingness to look at this differently, right? This is what we talked about in the Zero Show. That when you examine these issues, you're going to bring your own biases and their confirmation bias of, well, I held this position, my dad held this position, we've always been home alone, etc. You know, okay, we're going to examine this issue anew. Um, what's what's been the the catalyst to get people to come back to the sacrament? It's a little hard to say, but I think it has to go with. Uh, uh, I think it's tied in with that idea that you come to your senses about the purpose of the law and the purpose of the sacraments and why those regulations exist. And you say, wait a minute, I'm, I'm uh, uh, you know, missing the forest for the trees here because I'm, I'm uh, fixing on, on this little prohibition and that little prohibition and this little authorization, that little authorization. And I'm not getting the sacraments. No one is getting the sacraments legally according to this position and this forces me as a, as a catholic to step back and to try to look at the bigger picture of it to see if it makes sense so it's, it's i think the the um stepping back and then the the uh, realization that all of these different laws were for a purpose and that is to serve the divine law and, and uh, ultimately to um uh, effect uh, the solus animarum, the, the salvation of souls. That's the primary moving force here. When you say we talked about historical perspective, I was thinking about the historical perspective. Isn't there a, someone who who was in scripture speaking about the importance of, of if, if your donkey has fallen down a well, you know, on a certain day of the week, you know, should you do that? Uh, you know, whether you should you know, wash your hands, etc. Don't we have precedence within the context of Catholicism for giving the law supremacy over practical considerations? Is there, is there a part of scripture that addresses that? <laughs> We've heard it somewhere. Our Lord many times uh, rebuked the um, uh, scribes and the Pharisees for their uh, insistence on the observance of uh, what, in effect, were human laws to the detriment of, of the law of charity and the law of God itself. There is this this tendency to look at all of the little ins and outs of uh, human law, 
But our Lord calls us to to look at the bigger picture and uh, calls us not to be the scribes and the Pharisees. I suppose that's not a place I'd want to be in is in the the the, the modern replacement of the, the scribes and the Pharisees, but I cannot see where the, the analogy doesn't hold when someone's pointing me towards a sort of proof text to say, yes, and that's why you shouldn't go to Mass. I think, obviously, there are larger questions that we'll address this season about you can't just go to a Latin Mass because it's a Latin Mass. That's obviously a, a bad idea. But if a, a Mass is being badly ordained, uh, not in communion with a heretic, um, you should be able to go to Mass uh, because, as I, I think you've made the consistent point throughout this episode, the law is there, I suppose, in, for two reasons. One, it's to, to serve the greater purpose of, of saving souls, as you just made the point a few moments ago, that this is a, a superstructure that we, we put up when everything is fine, when the church is operating in normal circumstances, when, when uh, you're being bombed during wartime or when there is a death of a pope, or you're behind the Iron Curtain. Can't imagine all the priests just packing up their bags, you know, and saying, well, you know, I can't have jurisdiction, so I can't hear your, I know you're dying, and I know we're, we're here in some death camp, but uh, I can't hear your confession, I don't have jurisdiction, and I certainly can't say mass. I mean, I haven't talked to the diocesan bishop here. And while that analogy may seem to be a bit stark, I can't imagine that we're in anything other than a nuclear wasteland when it comes to the sacraments. I think that analogy holds because that was actual wartime. You could see it. The, the countryside was devastated. And now you have to have your metaphysical eyes, your metaphysical glasses on to see mm -hmm. that we're in the same warlike situation and we have to act accordingly, just as it would be absurd to think during wartime because this priest was in someone else's jurisdiction. He couldn't hear the confession of, a, of someone who, you know, needed to go to confession. Uh, I think the same, same applies here. Okay, well, you know, Father, Father Chikata is certainly not going to get a celebrate from, from uh, whoever is, in, is allegedly in charge there in, in Westchester in Cincinnati. So uh, I can't go to Mass anymore, and that's the end of it. Another consideration connected with that that should change one's perspective is, is really this, that people have the idea that the priest in his sacramental functions, that he is doing what he's doing because it's a, um, some sort of a special blessing or privilege that he's, uh, he's asked for, and that he's been granted this permission to do it, and this is a wonderful thing, and so is, if he doesn't have this um, stintingly granted permission, well, uh, then he shouldn't be doing it. But actually, what changes your perspective, I think, is the realization that a priest or a bishop uh, do what they do uh, because it's a question of duty. Certainly not to be understood in the sense that, well, you know, it's something that uh, where we do grudgingly, but it all derives from a command of our blessed Lord to the, the um, what's referred to sometimes as the great, uh, great commission, the great command to the uh, apostles to go out and to preach the gospel, to baptize uh, our Lord's commands, to do this in memory of me, whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven them, etc. All of these things are in the nature of the command, rather than uh, well, if, 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 you know, I give you 
if we get someone to give you permission to do these things, these are very nice things to do. So if if you start with that, uh, then that changes the perspective because you see everything that a priest does in terms of uh, a command, a divine law, uh, given ultimately by our blessed Lord to the apostles. And the, the all of the laws of the church are set up in such a way as to order that correctly and to fulfill the divine command. And when the laws of the church cannot be applied, those are human laws, and the divine law, uh, that divine law, that divine command uh, remains to baptize, preach, sanctify, consecrate, ordain, bless, offer mass, etc., so that's that's an, uh, another important thing to understand about one's perspective toward canon law, that the command of our blessed Lord behind it, ultimately. And I suppose another way of looking at it is their concept of a priest as, as a machine, and you're only allowed to do something if you're plugged into the electricity of, of a, an incarnation or a diocese or a religious order. So up to that point, you're sort of frozen in amber um, or that you're not even allowed to approach for ordination because uh, the electricity has been turned off. Um, And you're saying that by your nature as a priest, and you have to keep in mind, you you have a different nature. Maybe I I shouldn't say that you have a character on your soul that charity of of Christ urges us forward. You you have a, a special subtext within that. You you are a priest. You, you have to do these things because that's what you are. Uh, unlike us uh, as laymen, we don't have that special compulsion. We, we Above and beyond what we owe to, to our fellow man, you, you have been given that mandate. So I think that that's lacking as well. You're not a sacramental ATM, I suppose, is, is what I would say. <laughs> and if I am, I haven't gotten many deposits lately. So <laughs> the uh, a fortiori, or, or even more the case in the uh, for the question of a bishop, that uh, uh, someone who is consecrated a bishop has uh, you know an even greater responsibility to do things that a bishop is supposed to do to to uh, preach, to consecrate, to uh, ordain, etc. So uh, for both the priest and the bishop, uh, by divine law, they, they have this, this obligation, uh, moral theologians say, in virtue, of, uh, in virtue of their ordination. It's pointed out especially uh, if what are called the, the, the priests with the, the care of souls, those who are in, the, in normal times would have, been, would have had jurisdiction and, uh, from the diocesan bishop, etc., as parish priests, that um, if they are not available somehow because of war, because of persecution, those who do not have that authorization then are obliged in virtue of their ordination and virtue of charity to step in and to uh, convey, confer the sacraments for the good of the salvation of souls. I think we covered a lot of ground today, Father. Is there... There's a couple other things I want to ask. Would you add anything at this point? Um, if we are talking, if someone has the home alone position and they've been listening to us beat up on them pretty badly during the episode today, um, well, I'm going to give 
I'm going to give Father Chicada, the, the, the pastoral priest, an opportunity to, <laughs> to maybe uh, reach out and, uh, and uh, encourage people to look at this. Well, I would say that, um, uh, you know, I uh, understand in terms of, you know, your reading of church law where uh, you're coming from. Uh, and that these objections have been uh, these objections have been uh, made before, but there's been a um, uh, you know since the, the mid 70s since I've been in it, but uh, there have been a, a lot of very reasonable responses based on church law that answer these these objections, and I'd urge you to I'd urge you to look at them. I think uh, fairly easy to understand. They've been, uh, you know, sufficiently uh, researched to overcome these particular difficulties that you'd have, and it would maybe give you a new perspective on how you're looking at everything that you see in, uh, if you have, say, a, a vernacular copy of the Code of Canon Law. So. Be open to the possibility that um, you know there's something that uh, you've missed and some objection uh, that you have, which might have appeared as a good and legitimate objection at first, that uh, has in fact been answered. And also remember that's happened to all of us. You know, it it, it is it can happen. Uh, to you when it comes to the question of the Code of Canon Law and how you apply that. It certainly has um, happened in, in my own case with the uh, idea of reconsidering what my position once was on the Novus Ordo when I thought that it was was just fine. But you know, we learn otherwise. We investigate, we learn otherwise. I want to remind you that you are listening to Trad Controversies, Episode 1 on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and you've been listening to Father Anthony Chicada speak today about the issue of, of home owners, people who believe that canon law excludes them from the possibility of obtaining sacraments during this unprecedented time in church history. I think the last thing I would add as a, a layman to your advice, Father, is that I consider myself someone who's, who's decently educated, who's fairly well-read in these uh, affairs, but e- I think your your point at the beginning of the program is well taken is that instinctively this position seems to be troublesome. I think just in your gut, I know that's not a very canonical or scientific way to look at it, but the idea that, well, it says here that uh, we can't uh, approach the side, you know, we can't get valid sacraments, even though we know that father is validly ordained. Uh, I'm not allowed to do it because it says here in the rule book that you can't, that uh, we have the examples of our Lord. We have the historical examples, and the 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 word that's that's always the word that's spoken of here, which we can't end the episode without speaking about. Father is is a Greek one, and and that's epikaia. And can you explain to our listeners as as we uh, finish our episode today what that is and and why it applies here? That is a. Um... The concept in the interpretation of law. So in legal systems and in the law of the church, you have a series of uh, general principles that are used to uh, apply and to understand the specific laws, the, the specific provisions of any code of law. And one of the epikaia is old 
word, an old concept in, in Roman law that is sometimes translated as uh, equity, equity or fairness. And uh, it uh, is uh, used in particular situations to figure out what the mind of the lawgiver would be in a situation that um, is uh, especially or, or, or particularly difficult. And the uh, idea behind equity or epikaya is that the uh, legislator always has a benign purpose in mind in promulgating certain laws. And if a law appears difficult to apply or somehow confusing to apply, one may invoke a benign interpretation of it based on a reasonable interpretation of the mind of the legislator. So that is, that's essentially an understanding of, of uh, equity. So it, it uh, is certainly a principle that uh, applies, that uh, can be applied to the laws of the church, and particularly so in, in the difficult times in which we live. In episode zero, we, we dealt with Latin, and uh, episode one, we're talking about Greek, so we definitely have the uh, the basis covered as far as uh, old languages if you want to listen to trad controversies this season. Father, the last thing um, I want to ask before we go today, uh, when this episode comes out, you'll be in the waning days of your, your crowdfunder for, for Work of Human Hands. Can you update us on the current status of it and how many days people still have left, or uh, specifically what day the, the crowdfunder ends and people want to get in on that? The crowdfunder will end on February 2nd, the end of the Christmas season, and this crowdfunder is to bankroll, as it were, a second edition of Work of Human Hands, my study of the uh, uh, new mass. If you um, contribute $50 or more to the crowdfunder, you will get a um, an advanced copy of the second edition of Work of Human Hands, and I will uh, autograph it. And there are um, uh, other in- uh, other incentives uh, as well. So th- that ends on the 2nd of February. And the site to go to for that is workofhumanhands.tilt.com. That's workofhumanhands.tilt.com. And uh, that will give you some specifics. You can also see a uh, uh, little film that I have, which includes some uh, funny pictures of how I looked in the 1960s and 1970s. Those are those are probably worth a pledge right there. Um, <laughs> the other thing, if uh, I can speak about matters related to mammon, is that uh, our church organ here at St. Gertrude the Great is slowly dying. It's an electronic organ. And we have the opportunity now to, uh, believe it or not, it still uses punch cards. And the technology is about 35 years old in it. And we have a good music program here at St. Gertrude's, and we would like to get a newer electronic organ. Well, one came up for sale, and we can have it both purchased and installed for between five and six thousand dollars, which is actually next to nothing when it comes to uh, organs. Well, we, we've got we're running a fundraiser for that too, and you can find uh, out more information about that on sggresources.org. 
And uh, you can also see photographs uh, and including a uh, very nice uh, um, video of one of our uh, young organists. We have two young organists here, uh, uh, 12 and 15, of our 15-year-old organist playing a very snazzy French toccata. So um, I recommend that to you at sggresources.org. Listen, we have a we have a video as well. Um, uh, at least one of your organists, Father, on the YouTube channel. If you go to youtube.com forward slash True Restoration, you can find uh, that. So that is the sound you'll hear just on that organ. And this, I'm, if I'm understanding you would correctly, this is good. this will be an upgrade in what you currently have. Uh, yes, yeah, so what we're pr- uh, trying to do is, is get an up- upgrade from what uh, we currently have, and uh, uh, this would be a, a great help to our music program and a great inspiration for these younger musicians. So rescue an organ and, and buy a book. Those are our messages that we end Trad Controversies with uh, today. Father, thanks so much. And if for... you had any doubts about the fact that uh, I'm a Catholic priest, uh, surely uh, two, uh, two appeals for money would, would settle that. That's your first and your second collection. <laughs> right. We had two collections today. Father, thanks so much for your time. And if you have questions on this topic for Father, we will certainly address them in any subsequent shows. Our email address is controversies at truerestoration.org. Controversies at truerestoration.org. Father, as always, thanks for your time, and we look forward to future controversies with you this season. God bless you. Thank you for listening. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, that you please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who helped make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation that you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple ave for our work the next time that you pray. For the restoration, I am Stephen Heiner. May God bless. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.